Do you recognize the following phrase or quote? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It is a famous introductory sentence to the novel written by uh, Charles Dickens entitled A Tale of Two Cities. In this novel, uh, Dickens develops a story that happens uh, between two cities, London and Paris, at the period of history right before the French Revolution and during that revolution. Comparing cities um, is not a new thing. Uh, Centuries before Dickens, one of the most influential of the early church fathers, uh, Augustine, wrote a book in which he compared two cities, not London or Paris, but the city of God and the city of the world. Augustine's book is entitled The City of God. It's a very long book. I don't encourage you to pick it up unless you have a year plus to read it. Uh, He initially wrote the book um, because pagans accused Christians that Christianity was the reason why Rome fell to the Visigoths in 410 AD. In the first half, first 400 pages plus of the book, um, Augustine writes to dismiss and disprove that theory. But he also, in the second half of the book, in the last 400 plus pages, he provided Christians with categories of how we should understand our existence here on earth. Augustine offered the image of two cities, the city of God and the city of the world. And before the city of God takes over the city of the world in its entirety, before that happens, it coexists in parallel with the city of the world. And the book of Revelation tells us what it means to live in two cities simultaneously, in parallel. Revelation does not use a label, the city of God or the city of the world. Instead, it uses two other labels. And the labels the, city, the book of Revelation uses are the holy city and the great city. As we read God's word this morning, listen to the contrast between these cities and what happens in them. I invite you to open God's word to Revelation 11. Uh, We'll be reading from verse 1 uh, all the way to verse 14. Revelation 11, 1 to 14. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we would love for you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. They're black looking. We'd love for you to grab it. And uh, you may find this passage on page number 1034. Here's God's word for us this morning as we look at a tale of two cities and two witnesses. Here's God's word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts to hear well. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a mysterious word. It is a true word. And it is a sufficient word for our walk with you. Father, we pray that you would open our minds and hearts to hear your word, to understand it especially a passage that is so complex as this one. Father, we pray that you would use the proclamation of your word for the edification and the building up of your people. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Revelation 11. It is one of the most challenging passages in the book of Revelation. Um, Particularly the passage of the two witnesses. Uh, Let me say they are at least uh, three to four dozen titles of books and articles and several dissertations just on the two witnesses of Revelation. It is an incredibly difficult text to interpret and with views that are very, very, very different. This morning, I will not present you all the views. I will share with you, as I am convinced, uh, what this passage actually uh, or could refer. Recognize that perhaps if you have heard preaching on this passage, uh, it is possible that you have heard a different interpretation than the one I'm about to give. Uh, I am not alone in giving this interpretation. Others have considered it. Uh, So I just want to let you know this is a difficult passage. And if you uh, hear a particular perspective that is totally brand new, Consider it. Pray that the Lord would show you whether or not this is what he means. I just want to say to you, it's a difficult passage. With that in mind, 
the text we just read is part of the second major interlude of the book of Revelation. This interlude starts in the previous chapter, in chapter 10. And uh, it's important for us to read chapter 11, the two witnesses, uh, in light of what John experienced in chapter 10. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first half of this interlude at chapter 10 in particular, when John received a commission from uh, the Lord. A mighty angel appeared to John and gave him confirmation about what will happen at the end of the seven trumpets. The mystery of God will be fulfilled, John heard in chapter 10. And we saw that that mystery of God refers to the coming of his kingdom and to the complete overtake of, of the kingdom of the earth by the kingdom of God. Then the angel told John to eat a little scroll which was in the angel's hand. The little scroll was sweet in John's mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And then John was commissioned in, in, John, in, in Revelation 10 11. This is how chapter 10 ends. John was commissioned, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now that verse is very important because it sets the stage for what happens in chapter 11 where we will hear about witnesses prophesying and when we hear that their audience is many peoples, nations, languages. After being told that John must prophesy again, John sees two visions or gets two, two pictures of the holy city being under attack and trampled. And then a second picture is of two witnesses who, despite their powerful and successful witness, will end up still being killed. But that's not the end of the story. God will raise them up and will take them up to heaven. That's the story. Now, what are we to make about these two images? The common feature in these two pictures is the reference to a city. I wonder if you picked that up. In the first vision, we see a reference to a holy city. In the second vision, we see a reference to a great city. Now, both of these descriptions appear elsewhere in the book of Revelation as representatives of two different kingdoms. The phrase holy city is associated with the kingdom of God. The phrase the great city is associated with the rebellious kingdoms of the earth. Now, the main two characters that operate in these two cities are the two witnesses. Now, what they do and what happens to them reveals what it looks like to live and to minister at a time when the life of the two different cities run parallel in the same historical situation. So what does it mean to live as a Christian in a world found in deep crisis, in a world that continues to grow in hostility towards its creator? Let's look at this passage and what it reveals about what it means to live as a Christian in a world that no longer represents our values, our priorities, our loves, and our loyalties. This morning, as we look at this passage, uh, if you like taking notes, we're going to have two major points that each represent the, the visions that we get in this passage. The first point is, in the trampled city, 
yet under divine protection. In the trampled city, yet under divine protection. The second point we see is in the great city, yet faithful unto death. In the great city, yet faithful unto death. Let's look at each of these and see what the Lord desires to communicate to John and to his church through these two visions. In the trampled city, yet under divine protection. Right after John was commanded to prophesy again about many nations, tribes, and languages, and kings, the next assignment he gets is to take a measuring rod and measure the temple. What an odd assignment to measure the temple. Imagine if someone told you to to go out and measure this building, to measure its height, and you would have to go up to the steeple because it's quite high. Um, Imagine if you had to measure its width and depth and rooms inside. Now, it's important to remember that the command to measure the temple does not refer here in chapter 11 to a physical temple. Remember, John, after all, is on the island of Patmos. He's exiled there. He can't go to Jerusalem and measure this physically. And even if he could go to Jerusalem, uh, I'm, my conviction, my personal view is that the book of Revelation was written somewhere in the late uh, 90s AD, in the first century. Well, the temple by that time was already destroyed. There's no physical temple to be measured. This is a, spirit, this is a symbolic vision. We must understand this command to measure the temple symbolically. Now, although it's strange to, uh, for us to hear that John is supposed to measure the temple, this practice is not strange in the book of Revelation. It appears again in Revelation 21, when an angel measures the new Jerusalem that came down from heaven. In Revelation 21:15, we read that an angel took a measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and walls. In Revelation, the act of measuring symbolizes divine protection. But in Revelation 11, it's interesting that as God, or as, as God is, is commanding the, uh, John to measure the temple, God also commands John not to measure certain parts of the temple. Did you pick that out? Particularly the outer court of the temple. Why? In verse 2, we are told, because it is to be given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, some Bible interpreters prefer to take these two verses as referring to a time still in the future, even from our perspective, when a physical temple will be rebuilt in the earthly city of Jerusalem. But again, in the book of Revelation, the reference to the holy city is not to a physical Jerusalem, but to the spiritual eternal city that is coming down from heaven. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So whenever we see in Revelation this label, holy city, it speaks of the symbolic city which was designed to represent the kingdom of God. At the end of the age, the holy city will will be fully, fully secure with no glimpses of threat or oppression or any enemies nearby whatsoever. But here in our passage, in Revelation 11, 
this holy city that John sees and is commanded to, to measure the temple of it is invaded, is oppressed, is trampled. Notice that God says that the outer court of the temple and the rest of the city is to be given to the nations so they can trample it. It's important to notice that the nations don't trample this city by their design, but by God's design. God says it is given to the nations. They don't just take it out of their own initiative against God's plan. They take it willingly, but they take it in accordance to God's plan. And not only that, but God sets the limits so that their trampling only affects the extent that God determines. And that's why John is commanded by God, by, uh, by God to measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers in the temple, but not the outer temple. Because God has so designed mysteriously in his plan that a time will be when the holy city will actually coexist as both being the city that where the worship of God happens, but also the city that the people of it are being oppressed and trampled. In other words, the holy city that represents a kingdom of God is presented in this picture as a trampled city. Before we will see a picture of it as a glorious city in Revelation 21, in the book, throughout the book, it's a trampled city. But, despite being trampled, the worship of God's people remains constant. And this is a beautiful thing. God protects his people in the act of worship. Even though outside in the city they return to a life of oppression and of trampling. This means that we have here a picture of God's people as living in two realities. And both realities exist in the same scene. Both secure and oppressed. Both under trampling and also under God's wings, fully secure. This means that we have here a picture of God's people living in both of these realities at the same time. The picture of Revelation 11, 1 and 2 of the holy city is a picture of the church. Of the people whom God has revealed and in whom he has brought his reign and who manifest his kingdom here on earth at a time when the other outside foreign powers still oppress, attack, and trample the life of the people of God, the life of the kingdom of God on this side of heaven. The people of God are granted a divine security, but they're granted that divine security while continuing to live in a city that is facing oppression, abuse, injustice, violence, evil, brokenness, tears. On the side of eternity, life in the, God, in the city of God, in the holy city, is a life that combines both of these realities. Friends, as a Christian, we, any of us can fall in, in either of two extremes when it comes to understanding this tension. Some Christians live with a naive triumphalism that being a Christian is about a life of no conflict, of security, of prosperity, of a, of a peace that just... Um, makes our lives be at ease. 
So we fret and quickly react against experiences of trouble, of brokenness, of failed expectations, of mistreatment. But the vision John gets challenges such an impression. Living on this side of eternity is living, following a Jesus who both gives us divine protection, but also in a city that is full of turmoil and trampling. Other Christians have no problem embracing the reality of the brokenness, of the trampling as they journey through life. But for them, the struggle is to hold on to the promise of God, that God's protection and security is true, even while the experiences point otherwise. To such Christians, the vision John gets assures us that no matter what happens in the trampled holy city, God's people are protected by God. Their refuge is in God alone. Life in the holy city looks like, more like an oppressed and trampled city. But the worship of the people of God is secure and continuous. And here's the beautiful part. The part that remains secure is a part about the worship. The people of God are secure as they worship the Lord. That's not talking about physical security. It's talking about a spiritual security. This also means that no matter what kind of brokenness we see out in the holy city, that God gives us the source, the resources we need to keep our worship of Him constant and pure. God assures us of His divine protection as we live our lives as part of the holy city and continue to worship the Lord. If the first two verses introduce us to the life of the holy city, the remaining verses introduce us to the life of the great city. It is in the great city that we also meet the two witnesses. So the second point of this passage, in the great city, yet faithful unto death. The reference to the, to the two witnesses is one of the most puzzling uh, passages, references in this book. Some interpreters are convinced that the two witnesses here refer to two literal people who will appear in the future and uh, whose activity is to be uh, expected to be exactly word for word in a literal way interpreted as it's in these verses. I am not persuaded by that interpretation because in my view, uh, my opinion, my humble opinion, is that such a view ignores the heavily symbolic language that exists throughout this passage. I mean, look for instance at the 1260 days. The 1260 days is the same amount as the 42 months uh, which the holy city is trampled. But the 160, 1260 days is symbolic language representing the entire church age. That time started with the ascension of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, if we keep reading in Revelation chapter 12, look at chapter 12, verse 6, where the, hundred and, uh, the 1260 days appears again. In Revelation 12, we see a vision of a woman who gives birth to a male child, and we are told in Revelation 12, 5, the woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, 
but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So the 1260 days start with the ascension of this baby who's caught up to God's throne. I take that to be the ascension of Jesus after the resurrection. And notice the other symbolic elements in the story of the two witnesses. In verse 4, the two witnesses are described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, clearly, this is symbolic language. The two olive trees is a picture from Zechariah 4, 11 through 14, where Zechariah sees a lampstand and two olive trees. And the two olive trees represent two of God's servants where they w- were sent by God to accomplish God's task through His Spirit. The two lampstands is not a foreign image in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, if you remember, the lampstands were used as a symbol to represent the churches. So to say that the two witnesses are two lampstands that stand before the Lord indicates that the two witnesses represent the church. The reason we have only two witnesses as opposed to seven like we have in Revelation 1, like the the seven lampstands that we have in Revelation 1, the reason why we have two lampstands here in Revelation 11 is because we have only two witnesses. Well, you say, why do we have only two witnesses? Well, because in the Old Testament, there was a law that any credible testimony must be made by two witnesses. The reason why you have two witnesses is because the church is called to give credible testimony. To give credible testimony, you have to have at least two witnesses. Notice how in verse 3, the activity of, of the two witnesses is to prophesy. Now, to prophesy in the New Testament means, most often, to declare God's truth. And that is what we see in this passage. As the two witnesses prophesy, what they prophesy is described in verse 7 as their testimony. Notice, as when they have finished their testimony. So what they prophesy is declaring God's truth, and as they declare God's truth, that is actually testimony. In verses 4 through 6, the activity of the two witnesses is the most puzzling. And this is what troubles interpreters quite a bit. Um, their activity is quite phenomenal, uh, with some special effects, to say the least. And these effects are not new. They are coming from the Old Testament. Both of these special effects of uh, shutting up the sky and, um, and, and, the, and turning water into blood were miracles that God empowered Moses and Elijah to do to show God's power against those who rebel against God. It were, there were miracles to be displayed against God's rebellious nations or people. Both of these two major prophets were used by God to display the power of the kingdom of God as God confronts those who rebel against him. These are symbolic pictures that tell us the power of the kingdom working for the ministry of the two witnesses. In other words, the ministry of the two witnesses is accompanied by the power of the kingdom. But particularly about these these miracles is that they do these things so that their ministry cannot be stopped. 
that no one can oppose their witnessing prematurely before the appointed time. And yet, the time of their testimony does come to an end. And we're told in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the witnesses are killed. The source of their death is the beast that is rising. Now, this is the first time we are introduced to a beast in the book of Revelation. We'll get more details about it in chapter 12 and 13. But here, the death of the two witnesses is traced back to the beast. Also, the two witnesses are killed in a city that has many names. Wow, this is strange. When the beast conquers these witnesses, the dwellers of the earth rejoice. And they humiliate the two witnesses by denying them burial. So that their bodies are left exposed in the streets of the city. And the city in which they are exposed and humiliated and scorned is a city with many names. And this is important. The details about the names of the city is a key for our understanding of this passage. These names stand in great contrast to the holy city that we were introduced in chapter, in verses 1 and 2. Notice the four descriptions of the city in verse 8. Look at verse 8. How the city in which the two witnesses are killed and scorned and mocked and humiliated, look at how this city is described. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, at first look, we might be tempted to think that these four descriptions are just one physical city. But the symbolic names given to one city shows that John is actually portraying multiple cities and places in one scene. It is a great city. Who would not want to live in a great city? Right? I mean, a lot of things happen in the great city. Economy is flourishing. Businesses are growing. People are moving into it. The great city. But in the book of Revelation, the name, the great city, is not a positive name. To say that you live in the great city may sound glamorous at first. But every time this phrase is used in the book of Revelation, it is referring to Babylon. The city that has opposed God, the city that has killed God's prophets, and persecuted God's people. You can read how often the name Great City appears in Revelation 16, 17, and 18, and see how that label is being used. In the book of Revelation, the Great City is on a path of being doomed eternally. So the fact that the earthly Jerusalem is here described with a language referring to Babylon speaks of the fact that the physical city of Jerusalem has sided with Babylon and gained its reputation and name. This is an indictment. It is also called Sodom. In the Old Testament, Sodom represents a city that rejected God's messengers, a city that was blinded in its stubbornness, And it's in its rebellion 
the city that experienced the awfulness of God's judgment. In one day, the entire city was wiped out. Did you know that in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, the rulers of Jerusalem are described as rulers of Sodom? When Jesus came to the town of Capernaum, and the people of Capernaum refused to believe in Jesus, despite the many miracles that Jesus did in their midst, Jesus said that their rejection of him will make them more guilty on the day of judgment than the guilt of Sodom. Here's the point. God's judgment on Sodom is a pattern of the judgment that God will bring against all rebellion. And here in Revelation 11, the city where the two witnesses testify is identified as Sodom. It's also identified as Egypt. Throughout the Bible, Egypt became known as an example and as a pattern for all the world kingdoms that oppose God. And God's pattern for judging Egypt with its plagues shows up a lot in the book of Revelation. Just stay with us for a few weeks and we'll get to those passages. But here's the point. Egypt is used as a pattern in which we see God's future judgment of the world. And the place where these witnesses testify is called Egypt before the judgment. It's a place symbolically called such. But it's also the place where, they, where their Lord was crucified. And this is the one phrase that clearly shows us that it's talking, if there's a physical city in mind, it's talking about the physical city of Jerusalem. But according to John, the earthly city of Jerusalem, by rejecting the message of the witnesses and by killing them, is clearly siding with Babylon, with Sodom, and with Egypt. What these four places have in common is that they reject God's message and his messengers. John combined all these places in one scene. Four descriptions of four different places, yet they all appear in one scene. In this vision, as, as one Bible commentator said, in this vision, Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, and the earthly Jerusalem meet together. In other words, a city where the two witnesses are killed and they are refused burial is not just one city. It's a city with many names because it is not only one city that is in view here. The ministry of the two witnesses will happen in every city that has the same pattern as these four, place, four places. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 9. There's a hint in verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. Do you see who is the audience that is not only gazing at these two witnesses, but also refusing them burial? It's not just the people of the earthly Jerusalem. It's peoples... Tribes, languages, nations. This is a way of revelation of saying all peoples of the earth. In other words, it's not just from one city that people will be refusing the, the ministry of the two witnesses, but from every city from around the world where their same pattern will be carried out. Friends, all this is symbolic language that communicates a powerful message. The message is that Christ empowers his followers to be faithful witnesses whose witness cannot be stopped prematurely against God's plan 
no one can stop the witness that God is sending out into the world before it is finished. Yet the ministry of these faithful witnesses is not a triumphalistic ministry. Their ministry is characterized by both power and rejection. Power and suffering. Power and death for the sake of Christ. Both realities are a part of the ministry of these two witnesses. Friends, God can accomplish His aims with us not only when we are successful or seemingly powerful. And imagine the kind of power these two witnesses are presented as having in this chapter. Imagine that kind of miraculous ability. Whatever them I look for us today, God accomplishes His aims with us not only when when we're seemingly successful or seemingly powerful, but also when we are suffering and feel like totally defeated and useless. Last week I was with a group of pastors and some pastors shared uh, their challenges and various difficulties that they have experienced in pastoral ministry. And at the end of that time of sharing, one pastor prayed. And I remember a phrase that he used in his prayer that just struck my attention. And I wrote it down. He prayed the following words to the Lord on behalf of those pastors. He said, Lord, help us to fight the long defeat. Help us to fight the long defeat. Because we save a Savior. We serve a Savior who died and rose. So help us to lose and lose and lose again. It's not hard to pray, Lord, help us to conquer, help us to win. It's more difficult to pray, Lord, give us the endurance to lose and lose and lose again. Give us the endurance to face our defeat. The pattern of the two witnesses should amaze us not merely at their power, but at the contrast between what they were able to do while alive, but also how they ended their lives in death and despise and rejection and scorn and humiliation. Friends, this is a pattern for the redeemed people of God who live and minister in the great city. Friends, the fact that we share in the power of the kingdom does not change the path of rejection and tribulation that we feel. What motivates us to keep going, to face, to face the risk of defeat, of humiliation, of suffering? What motivates us in that journey? Well, look at the vindication of these two witnesses. Even though they have been killed, even though they have been scorned and humiliated, even though the whole earth turned against them, their story is not over yet. In verses 11 and 12, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. It's interesting that it's three and a half days. It's also interesting that they're, they're coming back to life. Everybody's amazed by them and they're taken up to heaven. It's the pattern of Jesus' resurrection. Despite their faithful witness, they are killed just like Jesus has, was killed. And yet God, just like God resurrected Jesus and took him to heaven, God will resurrect his saints and vindicate them and take them to him. When we put these two stories together, the two witnesses and the two cities, we realize that they actually refer to the same reality, to the same circumstances. The two witnesses are both in the temple, 
How do I know that? Because there are two lampstands. Lampstands typically were in the temple. They were equipment to help in the worship of God. They're both in the temple, in the holy city, but also their bodies are scorned on the streets of the great city. The story of the two witnesses and the two cities is John's own story. Remember there in John 10, John was commanded to prophesy again about many nations, tribes, peoples, and kings. Well, the same audience is the audience of the two witnesses in chapter 11. The story of the two witnesses is also our story. We live in two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, the holy city. These two cities are on a collision course with one another, my dear friends. They not only coexist right now, but they're also on a collision course. And in the present experience, the earthly city seems to be the winning one. And the holy city seems to be the one that's losing. It seems that the, the earthly city, the great city, is more powerful. In such a city, oppressive powers, the people of God are promised that they, they can continue to worship God constantly and unhindered and uncontaminated. But the price must be considered carefully. It involves risk, tribulation, suffering, and it calls for patient endurance that are in Jesus. No matter, no wonder that John, when he began writing this book, he said, I, John, your fellow sharer in the tribulation and the kingdom and the endurance that are in Jesus. John saw his life as living out the pattern of the two witnesses. And the pattern of the two witnesses is a pattern for all the followers of Christ. The story of the two witnesses tells us that God's people are called to be faithful witnesses. The ministry of the witnesses is not limited only to evangelism, although it includes that. The ministry of the two witnesses is described as an act of prophesying, of declaring God's truth. This means that the two witnesses are called to teach God's people, are called to, to call God's people to repentance, but also to build them up in the faith. The act of giving testimony is an act of declaring the Word of God in its fullness and the testimony of Jesus Christ in its fullness. God is sending these two prophets and describes them as witnesses because one of the climactic events of the book of Revelation is that God is going to bring this collision between the two cities before a throne of judgment. So through the two witnesses, God is preparing the world in which two different cities are coexisting. God is preparing that world for judgment. So what does the story of the two witnesses teach us about our calling? Friends, the two witnesses represent God's faithful witness to the world. And that faithful witness is you and I, if you are a follower of Christ. We're called to live this way. We're called to embrace this calling and vocation. Being witnesses will encounter hostility from the world and defeat by the beast. But for God's witnesses, death is not their last experience. What hope and confidence that is, even if now on this side of eternity, we see more on the losing side. God's witnesses are secure, are vindicated, and safe for all eternity. To be a Christ follower means that we are called to live in both cities. In the holy city that is trampled, 
but also in a great city and carry out there our witness, even at the risk of losing our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, remind us of your power and of your reign and kingdom. Help us to see our existence on this earth as being just one half of the experience, one side of what our physical senses can see and touch and experience. But help us to see with our eyes of faith that eternal realm that you prepare for your people, which you have brought to us and you call us to live in it. Father, help us to be citizens of your holy city with faithfulness, with courage, with confidence that you are a mighty God, a God who one day will crush all opposing powers, will expose all the rebellion and all the brokenness of this great city. Father, help us not to have hearts that are attached to this great city, but to have hearts that are attached to the holy city to which we look forward to, to appear in its full manifestation. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.